0: Thank you, Brian. Uh, you know, one of the uh, highlights of my week is uh, coming to worship with you as a church. I look forward to this every, every single week, and I just love this, sometimes the simplicity of our worship. Uh, I, I always remember what Jim Symbala said, um, it's hard for me to be clever and make Jesus beautiful at the same time. You know as the Apostle Paul said, "I don't come to you with persuasive words or filled with human wisdom. I just, I just want to come in the power of the name of Jesus." Right. So uh, we are in Acts four. Uh, I tried two weeks to get through Acts three. I gave up. Okay. So, um, so Brian, just so you know that last week um, we had no worship leader, no preaching, but God came down. Right. So because you the congregation, those of you who came and shared and spoke and, and the Lord uh, revealed himself through you. So uh, I had Acts 3, um, that outline in the bulletin, two weeks in a row. Uh, first week we got through half of it. Last week we got through none of it. So for those of you who are just like, you can't go to sleep at night because you haven't filled in all your blanks, um, I got a copy here. I'll lay it on the table. You can come up after the service and uh, finish filling that out. All right, how's that? So I do have Acts uh, 3 or 4 notes in there for you. We, uh, we'll see how far we get through this one. So obviously Acts 4 um, builds off of what has transpired in Acts chapter 3 and Peter and John are heading to the temple. They, they come across a crippled man who is, who is asking them for, uh, for money and uh, of course Peter says, look at me, and he reaches down and says, silver and gold, I have none, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus, and he helps him up on his feet, and this guy is miraculously healed. Now, keep in mind that miracles, there's a lot of, you know, um, rhetoric about miracles anymore. Does God still do the miraculous, and if he does, uh, you know, are they real uh, or, the, you know, when you look at miracles in the Bible was, you know, when Jesus was walking on water, were there just really, you know, rocks under his feet? Uh, we just couldn't see. Or when he, when he ra- raised people from the dead, was it just they had a near-death experience? They weren't actually dead? I remember reading uh, one liberal uh, theologian on the book of Genesis and, you know, concerning Israel going across the the, the uh the sea there, and, and he says, well, you know, literally that was only like three feet of water, and I, I, I thought to myself, well, that's amazing then. How did God drown the entire Egyptian army in three feet of water? That's, that's a pretty miraculous move then. If, if feeding the 5,000, you know, everyone just became generous because the young boy. So there's all kinds of ways that you can try to explain away the miraculous, uh, but God is a miracle-working God when he chooses to do that. And... Um, But miracles, as John's gospel reminds us, they are signs. They are signs that point us to something greater. They are signs that point us to the greatness of Jesus. And uh, I told you through the book of Acts, underline every time the the name of Jesus is, is mentioned, the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, or the name of Jesus Christ, because there is always power associated with his name. Everything that the disciples are doing, the apostles are doing, is because God has brought forth the power with which that can happen. The miraculous happens because God declared that it would happen. And so... Peter was very quick when this guy's, you know, this this crippled man's been there for uh, you know he's forty years old and he's running around and people are seeing him and they know that he's been healed. They cannot deny that, nor the religious leaders in that day and time could they deny what has happened. And so Peter was very quick to point out. Listen, this is not because uh, we are you know perfect individuals. It's not because we have any power source within ourselves. All of the power comes through the name of Christ. It comes through Jesus Himself. And then he begins to speak to those who are onlookers. They are they are standing back in astonishment. They are standing back in awe of what God has done, and as with Peter, whenever he addresses the audience, he always gives them truth, truth. but he also gives them grace, and in this speech that he gives to those, really his second sermon in the book of Acts, in the latter part of Acts 3, he he shares the truth. He says, listen, this is the Jesus, this is the Son of God, this is the one whom you have crucified. And he just nails them with the truth, but he does so in grace, and he says even of the Pharisees, you know what, Uh, I think that you were were acting in in ignorance, and I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt here. And he always leaves them with hope. Now, when we come to chapter 4, chapter 4 is really about the theme of boldness, the theme of boldness. He's he's going to unfold for us, uh, Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, uh, how the early church was bold bold in their speech, and how they were bold in their prayers, and how they were bold in their obedience. And so that's the kind of the theme of chapter 4. And so I titled this message, Amazing Boldness, because remember, Jesus instructed his disciples to go and to be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of of the world. And so we clearly see the theme of the text is talking him for and about God in very bold ways. And so it says, the priests in chapter 4 and verse 1 and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed. Why were they greatly disturbed? Because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized them. And because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. And so the next day, the rulers and elders and the teacher of the law in Jerusalem, Annas, the high priest, were there. And so were Caiaphas and John and, John and Alexander and other men of the high priest's family. And they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question him by what power? By what power? Or What name did you do this? And here's the second thing we want to note all throughout the book of Acts. And then what? Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then you need to know this. And all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. (laughs) I love this. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Boldness. Let me define it like this. Boldness is behavior that is born out of belief. Behavior that is born out of belief. Because what you believe will determine how you behave. Regardless of what you say, what you actually believe will determine what you do. If you believe that everyone is going to criticize you, then you're going to behave in a very tentative way around them, right? Right? If you believe you're probably going to fail, you probably will not venture out and try something, or you'll do so very cautiously. And so if you believe that there is one Lord God who is calling you and empowering you and leading you and equipping you to share this name of Jesus, then would that not have a bearing upon what we do with that name and how we engage in the hearts and lives with others? By boldness, we mean openness. It means to be a a candor, especially in the face of hostility. It talks about direct communication. It's a word that means direct communication that is rooted in a lack of fear. You are not going to let the fear of others determine your actions or your behavior. And so here are these apostles, and they have allowed God to orchestrate this miracle through them upon this man who is born as a cripple. And as a result of that, guess what? The religious leaders of their day and time are just all, you know, they're just all cranked up about that. They are bent out of shape. And so much so they are hostile. They're wanting they are looking for a means by which they can shut them up just as they tried to shut up Jesus. And so here they come and 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 in spite of all that's going to happen to them in this chapter It's not going to deter them because boldness is not not responsible for the response of the hearer, but they are not going to shut up. In fact, they're going to say, we are not going to shut up. We cannot stop talking about what we have seen, heard, and experienced. Boldness has something going on in your heart that says, I just have to tell you about this. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me how you respond, but I just have to tell you about this. And that's the, the belief. That is the, the, the belief that, you know, dictated their behavior as they're, as they're trying to get out the name of Jesus. Boldness is not this red-faced pulpit pounding, crazy, insane preacher person, you know, who just says, you know what? I'm I'm just filled with the love of Jesus. Now if you don't turn you're gonna burn. You're gonna go to hell and it's just like that. That's not boldness. That's not what he means by boldness. That's not what the, the word means. And speaking in boldness means that I'm speaking with assurance, I'm speaking with courage, I'm, I'm speaking with confidence that what I am telling you is the actual truth. That you, you would, it, listen, if you bypass this truth, it, you are going to be missing something the rest of your life. I so believe in, the, so here's three beliefs that will change your behavior. Number one is belief in the power of the gospel will compel you to share the gospel. See, if if I really believe that the gospel has power to save, if I really believe that the gospel has the power to save more than just from your sins, but it can also bring about the restoration of which where God speaks into your dead spirit life and empowers you with his Holy Spirit, and I really believe that that God can take your brokenness and bring healing in that brokenness, and if I really believe that God can heal you physically, and if I really believe that God can deal with the demonic issues in your life, if I really believe that, if I really believe that, then I'm going to share that message with you. But we're not sharing the message. In the Southern Baptist Convention alone, for the last 10 years, baptisms have been in steep decline. Giving has been affected. We've had to pull hundreds of missionaries off the field because of a lack of funds. Right now, six out of every 10 children who come through the church and uh, graduate out of the youth department and go off to college or off to work, six out of 10 are dropping out of the faith. They're dropping out of church they're becoming wayward. And we're not speaking about and we're not proclaiming this, this with confidence that Jesus has come to bring hope and Jesus has come to bring healing and that there is power. There's actual power in the gospel and we need that power because there is such brokenness in life. My sister in law was at our house yesterday. But it was Marla's birthday. And um, I'd have you sing happy birthday to her, but she's back in the nursery. So I got to be done on time. So uh, she came, and they're a part of a group, a, a small group, another church, a large church uh, in Pickerington. And uh, I said, well, what, what's your small group studying? She says, well, we've got this. Uh, it's, a, it's a new translation of the Bible, but she says it's in chronological order. It's the, so we're going through the New Testament in chronological order. And she says, you know, I never realized this until we started this process. I never realized how many people were coming to Jesus you know, in in that how many people were Jesus was healing and how many people Jesus was touching and how the crowds were just constantly on him and how he had to move away and and get to places of isolation because they were just constantly bombarding him with their needs. And then she says, and the other thing I, I never realized before, how many people that Jesus cast out a demon from, from them. I never realized that. She says, isn't that interesting that we don't have that problem in our day and time? Are you kidding me? I said, oh, Rita, we got to talk. I need to fill you in. There's a whole lot more demonic activity than we, we understand or that we're willing to acknowledge or deal with. That's one of the things that we don't want to deal with. We think that, well, they're a Christian. They can't have a demonic problem. Really? Because every person that Jesus cast a demon out of was of the house of Israel with the exception of one. And that was a mother from Syrophoenicia who came, who was a Gentile, who came on behalf of her daughter. And Jesus says, I'm sorry, but I've come for the house of Israel. And to which she says, but even the dogs get to eat from the crumbs of their master's table. And she used the word dogs because there was such a prejudiced rift between the Jews and the Gentiles that that's what they nicknamed them. They called them dogs. They, it was a derogatory term. And Jesus says, Have, I've not seen such great faith in Israel. <laughs> Trust me, your daughter's well. I'm not, um, I'm not your typical Southern Baptist preacher, in case you haven't noticed. I was never trained in any of this. I was a- absolutely ignorant of it until we had at our church a few years back, Don Dickerman came, who has a deliverance ministry, who's a Southern Baptist. Pastor who has a deliverance ministry out of Dallas, Texas, who came to our church and they did de- private deliverances. We did a seminar here we had a night of deliverance, and, and God just uh, was working uh, in just you know just ways that i'd never saw before, and so I learned so much and i 've continued to you know be in contact and and to learn and to, and to observe and His team was here, and we brought one of them back the next year on Easter and talked about how God delivered him out of the demonic and, and, and saved him and out of prison and it was just a, an incredible, incredible day and I thought, you know what, Lord, I, I don't know about all this stuff and I really don't know what to do about this and, and so, you know, I'll pray about it, right? So, so a young man was brought to me um, last year and this young man was having great difficulties and, and uh, so... Uh, An individual brought him and said, You know, I I really need some help. I need some answers. Can you meet with him? And so I met with him, and it became painfully obvious to me that there was an issue that went well beyond. And this is a Christian young man. He grew up in church uh, that went well beyond what he was dealing with in in the immediate. And God's spirit spoke to my spirit and said, There there is a demonic issue here. And so um, I took him through deliverance, it was videotaped. We sent the video to his parents because we, we wanted them to know. I mean, he was, okay, he's, he's of legal age. wasn't he? he was a minor. You say, well, how, how do you, what, what's that like? And so one of the reasons we don't deal with the demonic is because we, we've allowed Hollywood to Shanghai that and say, well, it's all about, you know, people's heads spinning and vomiting and, you know, from the exorcist and all these things. And, and it's not that at all. But, but Satan can have such a stronghold and because you've come in agreement with him and you, you've opened up areas of your life in which you have come in agreement with him. And, and, and so this young man, as he, he worked through some of these issues, and, and I did all this beforehand and I could see the definite patterns and how, how um, so much unforgiveness and so much anger and so much hatred towards his family and friends and school, and, and it led to addictions. It led to coping mechanisms that opened up further doors. And so it was obvious that it was there. And so when the, the deliverance started, I mean, immediately his countenance changed. All of a sudden, I mean, his, he, he just went down, he hunkered down, and, and there's just like snot running out of his nose. And, and I'm in uncharted waters, I've never done this before. But the name of Jesus, when that was brought up, everything changed. And God delivered that young man of all that he was held in oppression over him. And his life was set on a pathway that led to a very dramatic change. I do not fear. I do not fear what Satan can do because he has no power over me and he has no power over you as a follower of Jesus Christ. Unless you come into agreement with him as Adam and Eve did back in the garden. You have the authority and the ability. And so in this particular passage, we're not dealing with necessarily a demonic, although we will later on. I just want you to see that when you believe, when you believe. In the power of the gospel to change people's lives and to bring healing where there is brokenness, if you believe that, then you want to engage them in those conversations, right? We cannot afford to stand silent. We cannot afford to just say, well, you know, just let them look at my life and just let let them, you know, come to the conclusion themselves. No, the gospel, as I've told you many times, is built upon a historical event. Therefore... They need to know. We assume people know about the gospel, but we are living in one of the most biblically illiterate times in our country's history. They don't know. We assume they know. And our assumption is wrong. And so it says the priest and the captain of the temple guard, who was, you know, like the second in rank, they come and, and here's the Sadducees. And the Sadducees, you know, they're all bent out of shape because they don't even believe in the resurrection, right? They don't believe in resurrection, they didn't believe in the angels. There are a lot of things they did not believe in. And so they're all they're all bent out of shape. It says that they are disturbed, which means they are exasperated. Their patience has been exhausted. It's like, okay, you know what? I am we are tired of these guys out here talking about the name of Jesus. We've got to put a stop to this. And they're all fired up about this. The fact that the Bible teaches that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and resurrected from the grave. Now, what we hear in our day and time now is like, wow, Um, if consultants from had come to the early church you know, it says that um, many, even in spite of this, many people believed, and, and so here's the, the religious order against them. If consultants had come to that church, um, they would have probably come out to Peter and John and say, hey, Peter and John, uh, listen, guys, you need to turn down the rhetoric here. All right? You're getting the religious leaders of our day, and remember, these are the guys who had Jesus crucified just a few months ago. You need to tone it down. Stop talking. We need to come out with a different approach. We need some warm and winsome type of atmosphere. Hey, let's 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 just bring people together and get out the muffins and uh, give it you know a different track and take a different approach. And you know we don't want to get everybody in a tailspin here. We don't want them coming against us as as a church. See, we we think that. A hostile response is the outcome of a poor presentation. Let that sink in a minute. That if you share Jesus in a way that causes people to have a a kind of, you know, they're upset, then you've done it wrong in some way. Or So you have to find a different way to do it that people will not be upset. Listen, when you bring the gospel, listen, people do not mind talking about God, they don't mind talking about spiritual things, but when you, <clears throat> when you bring Jesus into the middle of it, all of a sudden the conversation changes. The demeanor of those whom you may be speaking to begins to change. It doesn't mean that you're doing it wrong, it just means that now all of a sudden there is a spiritual war that's going on inside of an individual. If Peter and John, you know, they have this hostile response, it's not reflective of a poor presentation. Otherwise, when we come to Acts chapter 7, is that what we're going to tell Stephen? Hey, Stephen, the reason they're stoning you to death is because you had a poor presentation of the material. Is that what we would tell Jesus? Hey, Jesus, the reason you got stoned is because you had a poor presentation of what you were trying to proclaim to people. I'm just simply saying is we as believers do not have to be obnoxious in our presentation of the Lord Jesus Christ because he's like a lion in a cage. You just let him out, he'll do his thing. All right, so we come in the name of Jesus and we have conversations and we engage in people's lives because when we bring to bear in their situation, in their brokenness, the name of Christ, there is the potential for their healing. If you believe that then you will share the gospel. Number two, belief in the purpose of God's mission will challenge you and me to never shut up. So he goes on to say in verse 14, but since they could see the man who had been healed standing there in front of them, there's nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw, to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then confer together. What are we gonna do with these guys? They ask everybody living in Jerusalem who knows that they've done out, you know, this outstanding miracle. We can't deny it, but to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer. Anyone, to, to anyone, to anyone in his name. Then they called them in again and commanded them to not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Why were they so adamant in continuing in the proclaiming of the name of Christ? Because it's the mission that God gave them. Jesus equipped them with the Holy Spirit, not just to sit in their house and to twiddle their thumbs. He equipped them, gave the authority to do this in order to bring to bear on people's lives the name of Christ. And all that Jesus came in order to bring hope and healing back into the lives of those whom he's created. Our mission. What does it mean to be on mission And where are we to be on mission? It means we're having conversations. It means that we are bringing to bear upon the hearts and the lives of people the power of the gospel. I watched 2020 last night. It was a story about two girls, actually three girls, Two, they were all 12 years old. So they began um, on the internet uh, looking up and, and coming across this thing called Slender Man. Never heard of it, but so really, uh, you you know, you have, um, so this is a very dark thing. It's a very demonic thing, really. And, and so they got all hooked up into the Slender Man and, and believed that if, it, they needed to be proxies of the slender man. If you're a proxy of the slender man, it means you have to kill somebody. Otherwise, the slender man's going to come and either kill you or kill your family. And so they got really deep into this and over time. And so they decided, you know what? We're going to kill our friend. We're going to kill her. And so for months, they planned out her murder. 12 years old. And so they do. They follow through with the plan. They lure her into into the woods, and one of the girls sits on her chest, and the other girl takes her knife and just starts stabbing her in her chest, in her legs, her arms. Nineteen times this girl is stabbed, but she doesn't die. But the friends, they stab her. They just kind of nonchalantly put the knife in the purse. They walk away, and the girl's still alive. And she struggles out of the woods onto a pathway, and there's a guy who's riding a bike. He comes across her, and they they take her to the hospital, and she barely makes it, but she does make a full recovery. Now, my question is, 12-year-old kids on an internet, hooked up in Slenderman, do we not see where our, our society is heading? You say, well, not every 12-year-old is watching Slender Man, and not every 12-year-old watching, looking at Slender Man is going to go out and kill somebody. I know. I know that. I get that. I understand that. But... But what took me back more was the reaction of the mothers because the mother of the girl who actually, well, Morgan, who was really the, the brains behind it, her mother was just like, I can't believe this happened. I, but, but then all of a sudden, the more she talked, she began talking about how, you know, schizophrenia was a part of their family history and so there's generational lines here and how her daughter seemed to have, uh, you know, obsession with the dark side. The first time she watched Bambi, Bambi and the mother got killed, she had no remorse whatsoever. She was more concerned about Bambi than the death of the mother. Uh, you know, the mother dear and, and all these things. And they they finally, they, they go into her bedroom and they uncover that her daughter for, for years has been mutilating Barbies, has been, been painting these graphic pictures and, and this whole journal of of death and how she wants to kill and all of these things that how how does a child get to that place? And I think, I think about our, our society in which we live. You know, just this past week, there's three new school shootings. We know that addictions are, are just continuing to skyrocket. Suicides, suicide among younger and younger children continues to escalate. And we have a whole culture, we have a whole society that is on a very steep downward trend and the church, the church is remaining silent. When we know what the answer to this downward trend is, so the next thing that this church does when Peter and John come back, they start praying, and they just don't pray any little prayer. So this is the third belief that that I think that will trigger something within us that says that in this basic belief in God's sovereign presence will cause you to seek the Lord. Notice that this church does not ask God to deliver them from the persecution. They do not ask God to make their pathway smoother. They don't ask God to, you know, unruffle the ruffled feathers. They don't ask God for any of those things. What they ask God for is, listen, Lord, may you continue to increase the signs and the wonders and the miracles. Will you continue to fill us with the Holy Spirit? Will you continue to enable us to speak with boldness? So let me just share my heart with you for a minute. Prayer. Prayer is something that we, we talk about, but we don't do much of. You try to have a prayer service in a church, nobody comes. There's a very few churches that carry on a prayer service that draws any number of people at all. Probably the biggest one is the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir, Brooklyn Tabernacle, Jim Symbolist church, and New York City on Tuesday nights. I mean, the prayer services there, thousands show up, people wait in line for hours to get in there because it's a church that was founded upon prayer, that is built upon prayer, that prayer is a part of their culture. It is a part of their DNA. And it has been from the inception but yet, we as Christians do very little praying. We say, well, you know, I pray on the way to work, and I pray this, and I pray that, and, you know, once in a while, I, you know, I get it in there, and we've got to change that. Not just our church. I'm talking about Christianity as a whole. We are so used to operating in our own strength, our own power in the flesh, that we don't even know what it means anymore to walk empowered with the Holy Spirit. Somebody has asked me, well, you know, after last week's service, you know, where are you going with all this, Greg? Where where I'm going with all this is I want us walking in the power of the Spirit, right? So when it comes to prayer, and somebody comes up to you in our church and says, you know what, would you pray about this? Oh, yeah, I'll pray about that. And you know how that goes. You may remember to pray for them and you may not. And and it might be one-time prayer. What would happen if we like stop right here and say, listen, let's just pray right now. Let me Come over here. Lay hands on them and begin praying for them. That's what the church ought to be doing. That's what we ought to be practicing week in and week out here in this place, in the the boundaries of this wall, in the safety of the body of Christ, so that we we build confidence in what God is doing, and we take that confidence beyond our walls so that we walk in the boldness of prayer. Because I'm telling you, if you want to walk in the power of the Spirit, it means there has to be prayer, fasting, and absolute surrender to the Spirit. That's where the power comes from. And then when you start operating in that power with boldness and confidence and courage, and you, you are not shy, You know, if you come across somebody and God opens up a door of conversation, uh, I was sharing in the class this morning, listen, when, when God opens up doors of conversation, one of the ways that he does that is that you know it just might be somebody's going through something, a, a time of brokenness, you say, you know, may I pray for you? But better is, may I pray with you? And then you do. You lay hands. You start praying, but you don't just pray like, oh, God, now if it be your will, please do this and please do that. As though you're begging God to do what he already wants to do. How many of you in this congregation have children who are wayward from God? Grandchildren who are wayward from God? How many of you have children or grandchildren who are being raised in homes where they're not being taught the things of the Lord? And we assume that if we bring our children and drop them off in church and put them in our classes and we raise them in church, that automatically all this stuff's going to rub off on them. But yet six out of ten are walking away from the faith. Though they grew up in church, it's not that they haven't been taught. It's not that they haven't learned. It's not that they haven't been challenged but where are the intercessors? Where are the intercessors as, as a parent, as a grandparent? Marlon and I have been talking about this so much because you know we, we just feel so compelled and so compassionate about we've got to intercede on behalf of our grandson because we know the kind of world that he's gonna be coming up in. We know the things that are gonna be facing him, but listen, we don't wanna just pray for him, we wanna bring him with us. It's like, you know what, when he gets old enough, We want to bring, if I'm going to pray for somebody, if I'm going to ask for God to bring healing in somebody's life, what would it be if I brought my grandson with me and had him a part of that process so that he learns it from a very young age and he grows up with the knowledge that, you know what, I have confidence in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have confidence that God is sovereign and that God can do anything that he desires to do and that God wants to use me as a channel by which this is going to happen in somebody's life to bring hope hope where there is hopelessness and to bring healing where there is brokenness i believe god can do this and will do this through me what if i raise them that way i believe that they'll have such a burden for the lost and such confidence and boldness in the power of the gospel of christ that it might just change the trajectory of their life when they leave my presence you think You know as well as I do that things are caught better than they're taught. What if we train the time kids are small, age appropriate, what if we train them differently so that when they, they come of age and they walk out of our homes, you know what's going on now? You know what I mean? Christian kids are in colleges or in workplaces, and their lives are no different than the lost people they're around. They're sleeping with anybody they want to sleep with, they're doing whatever it is they want to do. They don't they don't see anything wrong with it, they don't care. And it's just like where, where did we go wrong? There's no burden for people's lostness, there's no burden for uh, the plight of others. And then even if they come to me, it's like, man, I can't help you. I'm, I'm, I'm so broken. I'm still so broken. I can't help you in your brokenness. I haven't I mean, been able to help my own brokenness. Well, why is that? Why is it that we can sit in church for 25, 30, 35 years and still be just as broken as we were the day we were saved? that we're still struggling with the same addictions, we're still struggling with the same old issues over and over and over again. Is not the power of the gospel bigger than that? I believe it is. But also believe that we as God's people must walk in the power and the fullness of the Holy Spirit if we want to see God and his word come through us in bold ways. God wants to do it. We're the ones who are hesitant. God has so burdened my heart for the church not just this church the church Southern Baptist churches a lot of churches already get this but we don't because we've just not been challenged that way Um, with the Holy Spirit somebody says are you trying to get us all to speak in tongues no I'm not If God gives you that gift, great. It wouldn't be a bad thing if we all did. But Paul said not everybody has that gift. But for those who do, in Southern Baptist realms have had to stay in the closet for fear of coming out. As though it were a bad thing. How horrible is that? A gift of the Spirit. Now, I don't understand if you're a cessationist that says, well, you know, all the gifts of the Spirit went away after the apostles and the completion of God's word, and they pull out a verse out of 1 Corinthians in order to substantiate that. It says, well, you know, when, when the perfect comes. You know when the, who the perfect is? The perfect is Jesus. When is he going to come? He's going to come in his second coming. Until then, the miraculous, the signs, the wonders, the healings, they're still very much in play. And God uses the giftings of the Spirit In order to bring that about, I believe that wholeheartedly. There's power in the gospel. Let it out. And watch what God will do. Let's bow our heads together.